It's a mystery, too. Its story feeds human souls. Whether you believe in her soul or not, there's something deeply interior that gets engaged in the presence of a human story. Coming up on In Contrast, Andrea Debuse III. I'm Milan Stabans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Andre Debuse III is a writer of novels, short stories, and nonfiction. His 1999 novel, House of Sand and Fog, was a National Book Award finalist and was made into an Academy Award-nominated film. His memoir, Towney, is about growing up poor in the Massachusetts mill towns of the Merrimack River Valley. Winner of numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and two Pushcart Prizes, Debuse teaches at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. His latest novel is Gone So Long. This is from early in the novel, Gone So Long. One of the main characters is Daniel. He's in his mid-60s. He's very sick. He's not treating what he has. He has not seen his daughter in 40 years since she was three years old. He has just gone to the library and found her on Google in about 20 minutes. And now he's decided he's going to write to her before he goes and sees her one last time. He sits up too quickly, spinning brown plates crowding his vision. He inhales deeply through his nose, smells the burned butter from his grilled cheese sandwich he only stared at, the pine sap through his screened windows. It's another hot day and his t-shirt sticks to his back, the revolving fan pushing around nothing but warm air. In the drawer beneath the toaster, under loose pens and pencil stubs and the broken calculator, is the small pad on which he multiplies his price times the number of chair holes, and he pulls out the pad and one of the newer pens and sits at the table. He stares at the straight blue lines and all that empty space between them. He gets up and slowly fills himself a glass of water. He sits back down. The whir of the fan, the shriek of a crow in the trees, he leans forward and writes, Dear Susan, he crosses this out. My dear Susan, no, this sounds too much like she's his, that he deserves her. Susan, no, too cold. My daughter Susan, yes, that's better, it's the truth, but it's still too cold. My dear daughter Susan, that's right, isn't it? All four words in that order? though there's still the feeling he's claiming something that is no longer rightfully his. Then start with that. Why not start with that? I've got no right to call you these things, but even with everything that happened, you are my daughter, our daughter. Your mother was a very good mother. I hope you remember that about her. She did not deserve... He stops. That hot, smoky kitchen. The overhead light missing one bulb so it was never bright enough in there. And Linda, she had had it. She was screaming, and she was leaving, and it was like being told your heart and organs are about to go for a little ride, and you have no say in it, none whatsoever. Andre Debussy, it's a pleasure to have you in In Contrast. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me start with a very simple question. Do you like writing? No. I love writing. I love writing. Well, I've been writing all my adult life. I'm 59, so that's, you know, 36 straight years I've been writing. And every few years we'll think, well, when am I going to go do what I'm really supposed to do? I guess, you know, I should go to law school now or medical school or go be a guitarist and a singer or I don't know. 
I'm so full of it. I love sentences, and when I'm not writing, which is rare, I feel far away from my very center. So I love everything about writing. Is it a tortured exercise in spite of this love and passion that you have, the actual sitting down for two, three hours and letting those sentences out? It's more torture if for some strange reason I can't get to that desk. I mean, the only torture... It's a sweet torture. It's a delicious torture. It's exceedingly difficult to write really well, and I think that that's why a lot of writers do it. The result of a study years ago, a psychologist traveled the world for, I don't know, maybe decades, and she was asking one question all around the world, what is the secret to happiness? And she had a lot of great answers, but one that stays with me is one that stayed with her, and it was a very well-to-do businessman in Calcutta, India, who was also a published poet. And it wasn't all the money he'd made that made him happy. It was his poetry. And it wasn't the fact that he published his poetry that made him happy. It was trying to write a really good poem. And his answer to happiness was, the secret to happiness is total absorbedness, to be totally absorbed in a task. You know, for me, writing well has been always my goal since I began, and writing really well has been my goal. And whether I've achieved it or not, I don't know. But I do know that I'm most joyous when I'm trying And when you look back at all those decades, you say you've been writing all your adult life. In what way has your relationship with the English language changed from when you started? When you describe in Townie that moment where you write a short story that you sent to Playboy and that your father says, yes, you are a writer, to the English language that you have today? I've never been asked that question. That's a beautiful question. I would say I'm not as afraid of it as I was And I'm having an insight right here in front of you. Not afraid so much as slightly intimidated by the toolbox. You know, you open that toolbox of the English language, and it's wide and deep and long. And for years, I would reach for the safer tools, the ones that I could wield without dropping. But now I am less intimidated by the language. Not that I've gotten any better, but, you know, just doing it all these years. And I'm reaching with a little bit more chutzpah, I think, than maybe I did when I started. Do you have any sense, and this might be a ludicrous question, how broad is the range of your vocabulary? You know, in this beautiful book, Gone So Long, your latest one, there's, of course, the perspective of various characters, then you switch from one to another. And the perspective of an individual is also the scope and length that that individual has in terms of capacity of articulating the world. But as the master, as the puppeteer, do you have any sense of that? Is it even thinkable? The sense of... Of how many words you have at your disposal no, to be able to I, recreate I, this world. I do have a sense that it's limited. I do feel that, you know, I mean, like so many writers, I mean, I never feel confident, but my fear doesn't paralyze me. Right. So every day, including today, I start writing with a mild dose of fear and terror, suffused with expectant joy, the kind you have when you're going on a trip. You know, I'm going on a trip. What am I going to find? But I do sense in the same way that well, let's take the metaphor of a trip. I'm sitting in my car, my truck, whatever. I feel I'm enclosed in a closed space and there's the road in front of me and I'm dying to drive off the road through the trees But there's always a sense that there's something. It might just be form. It might be the unity of a work. But I can feel the limitations of what I'm working with. And I'm always trying to break those limitations and bend them. Flannery O'Connor has this great line. She says, the writer can do whatever she can get away with. 
Unfortunately, very few of us have ever been able to get away with much. So when sitting down and writing, I've read interviews that you've given and radio conversations that you've had, you don't know what you're writing about until you sit down and write about it. Yeah, Is yeah. this the tunnel that you're entering and you are mapping it out with those tools? You know, it doesn't even feel so much like a tunnel as it feels like cosmic space. The less I know, the better. Over the years, I've learned to trust what I'm curious about. And it tends to be a human situation I've overheard or seen or witnessed or experienced a little bit myself where I am curious about exploring more deeply with words that human situation. It tends to be one where there's some inherent trouble, which is where, you know, all stories come from. But to answer your question... No, I have to see the opening image a little bit. So we've gone so long, the opening image was of 60-something-year-old Daniel caning a chair under the sun. That was the opening thing I saw, and that's what I went with. The opening image isn't always the one that ultimately opens the finished book, but in this case it did. No, I found the less I know, the better. And then by turning it over to my characters and trying to find them, it tends to lead to truer outcomes story-wise than otherwise. This book took you, at least from the moment you published your previous book to this one, a decade. Do you get impatient along the way? I mean, a decade is a long time to be with characters or well, might not be enough. Well, this one was really five years. You're right. It's been a decade since I published my most recent novel, The Garden Last Days, in 08. But I did publish Townie, that memoir, and then a collection of novellas. So I did work all the way through. This one took five total years. It was three years to get a big, fat, bloated draft, and then two years of arduous revision. But to answer your question, no, I don't. And I'll tell you why. I don't because I try not to ever think of my writing career ever. It's easier said than done, especially because my family's financial health is dependent upon my having a writing career. But the truth is, I think there's a difference between being a writer and being an author. And I'm very grateful I'm an author. That means I've published work that people read, and that's a wonderful gift. But it's not why I do it. I do it because I love writing. So if you love writing, the book's going to take what it takes. The only impatience comes in if I think about getting a paycheck or, you know, keeping this production line of books going, which I think is death to creation. I think if there's any one enemy to creativity, it's probably self-consciousness. Mm. One of my favorite lines about that is from a Nadine Gorderman novel where one character has an insight as to what sincerity is. And she said, sincerity is never having an idea of oneself. And I love that. You know, I avoid reading book reviews. I don't Google my name. I don't do a lot of literary things except in a teaching capacity and fundraising capacity. I protect myself to keep myself from being career conscious. I keep myself from remembering as well. It's been a few years because I don't want to push these characters. I don't want to rush them. It's not about them being in a book. It's about them coming out of the dream world. And in that process, in this case, five years, do you also protect yourself and your characters by not reading other authors at oh, that no. time? Or you read a lot? Oh, I you're... read my butt off. I know that that's a school of thought for some people. I don't want to be influenced. I think, come on, man. Look, do whatever you want. Norman Mailer famously said that, that he doesn't read the work of his contemporaries because he gets self-conscious and demoralized. He'll read history and nonfiction while he's spending five years on a book. I'm no Norman Mailer, but I get infinitely inspired by good writing. I was talking about this with my wife who's a dancer the other day. I've never understood the, I guess I understand, but I do not feel envy when I read a book greater than I'll ever write by someone I may even know. All I feel is joyous and grateful that it got created. 
and it makes me want to write better. So, no, I read. That's my fuel when it's not And writing. in reading along the way of creating a novel, does that make you rethink or push the style in any particular yeah, way? Yeah, I think it must, although I try to stay unconscious about it because I don't want to purposely be borrowing from other writers. Not because there's anything wrong with, like, say, trying to capture the long sentences of a Cormac McCarthy or the intricate plot of, like, a Michael Cunningham's The Hours. It's more not wanting to write from the outside in. I've learned to trust over the years that whatever lessons I'm getting from some great book I'm reading will show up when they need to. I'll give you an example, a concrete example. I was doing a book tour in Germany for my novel, House of Sand and Fog, which, you know, was the one that put me on the map and made me an 18-year overnight success. And I'm being interviewed by this German journalist in Berlin. And he said, listen, how did you get the idea of the two voices? You got the Iranian colonel voice, then you got the woman's voice, the house he took voice. And it wasn't until he asked me that I realized, oh, Richard Price's novel, Clockers, which is in the point of view of a black street kid and a like Jewish middle-aged homicide detective whose marriage has fallen apart. And if I had not read Price's novel three or four years earlier, I wouldn't have gotten the psychic permission to have two conflicting distinct voices kind of opposite each other. So that gave me a model that I wasn't even aware of. And that happens all the time. And I think it's wonderful. So no, I read, 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 read. You have described your type or your kind of writing, Andre, as character writing. Before I go deep into that, because I want you to develop what exactly that means, I wonder if you can tell me what other types of writing you don't do in the sense of how you don't build a novel. Well, I'm not a fan of the plot-driven novel, the novel where you feel the characters are there just to serve the needs of the larger action of the story. And for that reason, I'm not a big fan of murder mysteries, and there's nothing wrong with murder mysteries, and I know there's some beautifully written works of art out there called that. I've always been far less interested in who did it as opposed to why, and what was that like? So, you know, Vonnegut had this great line. He said, look, If you're going to write a novel, you should tell the audience in the very first page everything that's going to happen in this novel and then do it. I'm also not a huge fan of a lot of postmodern work. By postmodern, I mean post-1950, and I won't name names, but, you know, big fat books tend to be written by white guys with glasses. Big fat books, <laughs> said the white guy with glasses. Big fat books full of a bunch of words. I love this line from Hemingway, writing's easy to you think of the reader. I'm always trying to think of the reader's experience. I'm not saying I'm successful in it, but it should never be about the author for me. It should never be about the writer. It should never be about using a book or characters to promote yourself in some way. And I do think there's a lot of writing out there like that. So I try to really avoid doing that kind of work. What exactly is character? How do you come in the process of shaping a manuscript to the realization that you have more than a silhouette, more than a vague idea of what this particular individual might or might not be doing, and instead you have a character? And the word here maybe is incredibly useful in that it has two meanings. One is that it's a fictional creation of a human entity, and the other one is that it has a particular way of reacting, a person's character, and mm -hmm. then a character in fiction. Mm -hmm. So how do you come to the realization that you have now labored enough to have the character of Daniel or the character mm -hmm. of Susan as characters, that they will be both predictable in their behavior, but also hopefully unpredictable in that they will surprise you in how well, they well, are. Well, you're totally right on. I mean, Gustave Flaubert 
the wonderful French novelist, right, is the one who coined the term round character versus flat character. And the kind of character that I seek to create myself, I want to be so round that they're even more alive than people you know or live with, or at least as alive, or at least as alive as someone you used to know. And Flaubert goes on famously to say that you know you've got a round character on your hands as the writer if the character is capable of surprising you, but then convincing you of that surprise. The same way we all act out of character. So I know that something special may be happening on the page when the characters start to say and do things that I wouldn't say or do myself or that I didn't see coming, even if it's a small gesture or a comment. And none of this is possible, I have found, over the years. And it's the one thing I try to impart in writing classes, and I don't know if you can teach this, but you can point it out. None of this is possible if we're not writing with authentic curiosity. To me, I think that is the kryptonite of the superpowers a writer needs. And you can't choose what you're curious about. In the same way, I would maintain that you can't really choose with whom you fall in love. You either do or you don't. You can't choose what you're going to be drawn to. And I've learned over the years to trust what I'm drawn to. But it is that authentic curiosity, I would argue, that must therefore then lead to a state of non-judgmental stance. You cannot judge what they say or do, even though you may once you're done writing. I've written characters all the time who I won't want to hang out with. And I would judge them, or at least their actions. I try not to judge people, but I do judge actions, especially my own. But if I'm judging them, they're not going to show up. It's really a weird kind of beautiful thing that happens on the page. In the same way in real life, if you prejudge someone, they're not going to want to hang out with you if they think you've got them all figured out. Is there inauthentic curiosity, too? You're stressing the word authentic, but can you be curious and not care or not, not be genuine? So. I can't imagine. Well, let's talk about marriage. You know, we can all get into ruts in a marriage. I've been with the same woman happily for 30 years. Those moments when we're drifting, sometimes weeks at a time, the way it's so easy to do in a marriage, I force myself when I'm asking her questions to really listen. But I'm forcing myself to reignite the curiosity that I really do have about her day. But, you know, when you get in these ruts with people, you start thinking about the Merlot you're going to sip while you're putting your olive oil on, while you're thinking about the phone bill you got to pay. You don't listen. And so I think you can force yourself to get into a curious state, but then it better be genuine. And it mm. is, in the case with my marriage, it is genuine because I love my wife and I do really want to know how her day went. But listening and hearing are two different things. But when it comes to the kind of authentic curiosity I'm talking about with trying to write character-driven fiction, yeah, I think that it is a form of caring. If I'm asking you questions about your existence or your day, it shows that I am interested in you and I care to hear the answer. And I do think it is maybe even a form of compassion. There's a famous moment in the writing of 100 Years of Solitude by the Colombian writer Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He would isolate himself in the mornings, early afternoons, and write, 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 and in the evenings go up and tell his wife what had happened in the story. And the wife was able to keep up with the Buendia characters. He has, you know, this sprawling genealogy. And there's one particular incident in which he, Gabo, as he was known, goes up and starts crying inconsolably. And Meche, Mercedes, his wife, says, what happened? And said, oh, Coronel Ardeliano Buendia finally died, and I, I can't stand it. This is a moment decisive in the book. And I wonder, in shaping this book and others, if you come to certain realizations or instances in which what you have written has shaken you so deeply mm. that maybe a tear is spilled or maybe you run out of words. Yeah, I don't run out of words, but if you allow these characters to have their own agency, and if you allow them to sort of take off 
And the way you do that technically is to, you know, ask the authentic questions about their moments. What are they feeling? What are they thinking? What are they eating? What are they smelling? What are they remembering? What are they doing? They start to take on a life of their own. And when you do that, it will often go somewhere where you don't actually want it to go on a human level. That's happened to me quite a lot. Truman Capote said the writer must write as cool and detached as a surgeon. And I used to hate that when I was a young writer. Ah, you can be cool and detached, Truman Capote. I'm a friggin' passionate French-Irishman, man. <laughs> but he was right in the same way. You know, my wife had our three kids through C-section. And it's a long story, but I witnessed a C-section of a friend before that, and I felt nothing. I said, well, I could be a surgeon. I've got a stomach for this. Until it was my wife's belly being cut open, I almost passed out. So I feel very little when I'm writing. I'm working so hard to reach for the right scalpel, the right sponge, to have the right light, you know, on the body. But it's after that it hits me. And I may be driving and then I'll just start to weep or I'll just be in a horrible state. And it's from the dream world. It's really quite a mysterious, beautiful, strange thing. The feeling I have when I sense that maybe I might be writing well, which is a feeling I get like every 14 writing days for a few minutes, there's the sense that I just keep unearthing something. It's already there. But I can tell you we've gone so long. I did feel that journey took me somewhere that did a number on me. I think in a good way. I'm not going to say I like where I went, but I feel that where I went there was honest and wasn't easy. And I was able to hold on. But it aged me. Mm. <laughs> I hope it doesn't age a reader. <laughs> What do you do with a character? And there are aspects, at least, if not full characters, in Gone So Long that might have this characteristic a character that you don't like, you've explored, you've developed, yeah. you've talked about empathy, you've talked about genuine, mm -hmm. authentic curiosity. But there is an ugly side to many of us. There's an ugly side to humankind. And it can sometimes take over a person, but that person is crucial for one's plot or one's mm -hmm. narrative. Mm -hmm. What do you do with a character you can't stand? Well, what I'm about to say is going to sound simple, but it's not easy. I love them, but I don't have to like them. And I'm sure you have people in your family or some friends. I definitely have some family members, not my immediate family, but, you know, I've got some close people in my life whom I love, but I don't necessarily like much and never really have. <laughs> Here and there, I like them. And maybe they feel the same way about me. But to me, it's the same thing. So when you love a family member but don't like them, there's a sort of a blood loyalty. You know, Uncle Joe, you're a creep, but I still love you and I'm your nephew and I'll stand mm. by you. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. although it's a very conflicted and yeah. contradictory emotion. See, I'm glad you say conflicted and contradictory, because I think that is the province of art right there, is that gray. And our job is to step into the gray. And one of the many things that I don't like about American culture these days is we live in fundamentalist times where, you know, looking at the good guys and the bad guys. And we have a guy in the White House who talks about good people and bad people, and I don't believe they exist. I don't believe good guys exist. In the way you talk, Andre, in the way you deliver your sentences, orally and in written form, but particularly in townie or when you talk like you are doing now in this conversation, there is a modesty that keeps on popping in, in with which, at least from my perspective, you struggle, but you also present as a front. It doesn't strike me and others as a false modesty, but it's a modesty that you engage with. You don't want to call yourself a great writer, but you can have moments of goodness in terms of the quality and maybe even greatness. Is this a way of keeping your horses in the stable and not letting your talent run too far away from yourself? That's a really great question. I can tell you it's not false modesty. It does not have to do with my having noble attributes like humility. I do try to be humble, and life humbles people daily. But no, you know what it is, I think? I love how you just put that with the horses and the talent, is 
whatever talent is. I constantly feel when I'm writing, which is, you know, my life, that I'm tapping into something larger than I am. Speaking of humility, I think that's the artistic task, to humble yourself to something greater than you are. I do philosophically believe that the writing is larger than the writer. I know the great John Irving says that he knows his last sentence before he writes his first, and I do know he outlines his novels and then spends years fleshing them out, but very few writers write like Irving. And I love his novels, but the truth is, whatever modesty you see from me, for instance, I don't read reviews, but here's where And I'm, you don't read them because you want to protect yourself? I want to protect myself. Well, here's where I'm full of it. If there's a really good review with a lot of wonderful over-the-top praise, I can hardly bear it. I can hardly bear it because, first, I don't believe it. But secondly, I feel as if the wrong guy's getting credit. Yes, I wrote that book. Yeah, I got up at four in the morning for years. Yeah, I edited the hell out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But D.H. Lawrence said, it is not I who writes, but the wind that blows through me. There is a beautiful, curious sense of having found the wind, and that something larger takes over. And so it feels almost dishonest to take credit for having created something that somebody enjoys. However, if someone writes a bad review or has some harsh negative criticism, I think, yeah, I screwed up. It's all my fault. <laughs> I'll take credit for that screw up. <laughs> There is also a constant ruminating in the way you talk about the moment we live in America, who's in the White House, the polarization, the lack of empathy that we have for one another. And maybe I'll bring two of the categories or the emotions that you've been mentioning, humility and modesty. We're also at a period in which those two seem to have gone Hard to find. out the window. Yeah. How did we get ourselves here? Well, I have theories. And is the novelist a kind of producer of mirrors or a conduit, a I Virgil? Th I think so. I think the novelist should be a producer of mirrors, but that's not to suggest that a novelist is any smarter than anybody else. I want to really underscore that. And back to authentic curiosity. That's not to say a writer doesn't have political opinions, theologies, philosophies, lack thereof. But I work very hard not to write a didactic piece of fiction. I don't want to be the teacher in the room. I do want to be the truth seeker in the room. I don't have to be the only one. I want to be the truth seeker when I sit down. I want to find, without judgment, what it's like to be in a human situation and hopefully get to something that might be helpful to the reader to read. If only it's, my ugliness is in this book, thank you. The writer Janet Burroway said, look, when we go to the novel, what we readers are saying to the novel is, give me me. Leo Tolstoy said that art is transferring feeling from one heart to another. The only thing that's going to transfer feeling is truth, illuminated in some way. I think that's the artist and the novelist's task. I will say about the time in which we live, it is an ugly time. And I detest the man in the White House with every fiber of my being. I don't think I've ever hated a living human being more on every level. However, I don't hate the people who voted for him. And you don't hate them because you understand them? I don't know if I understand them. I do know that a lot of them are the kind of guys that I grew up with. I'm talking about white, blue-collar guys who didn't go to college or had a little bit of college. Their livelihoods have been taken from them. But they should be looking at Wall Street instead of hardworking immigrants trying to find a life walking here barefoot over thousands of miles. They should be looking at Wall Street. They should be looking at robber barons like Trump himself. They should be looking at a capitalist system that is cruel and inhuman and, frankly, wrong in many ways. And I'm not a communist either, by the way. But I do believe in <laughs> compassion. That's my favorite word in the English language, and it means, as you know, to suffer with. And if we're not daily asking ourselves what we can do to alleviate at least one person's suffering, what the hell are we getting out of bed for? Well, sadly, a lot of us get out of bed to glorify ourselves. You know, one reason I don't do social media, and I don't want to trash social media because I know it's not all bad, but I do think it's contributed to an incredible narcissistic time we're in. This whole notion of a selfie 
taking pictures and posting them. I'm not saying it's all bad. I am saying that everyone, I told you I made up this phrase a few years ago, everyone's become the curator of the museum of me. And it's why I love the reading and writing life. You know, it's why I read as a reader, to leave my own small existence and enter into the realm of others. Talking about the man in the White House and talking about selfies, narcissism is probably the illness of our day and of our country. I agree. Maybe more so now than before. So the question that I have for you is, are we more narcissistic than in the 50s or the 20s? Or do we simply have more ways to express that narcissism through social media, the expansion of entertainment that takes over almost every aspect of life? I tend to agree with B. I read a lot of history and I don't think we've changed much as a race over many, many years. You can point to some things. For example, I love the millennials. I think this generation is really cool. They are inherently less racist, less misogynistic, less homophobic. They care more about the earth. They seem to be less materialistic as a group. I do think, though, you know, and I'm not a total Luddite. I love my laptop and I love the Internet and Google and YouTube. You know, if I want to hear Miles Davis, boom, I'm hearing Miles Davis. But the handheld device, and I don't want to get off this too much, but it's done a real number on really putting people in a trance. And I think it's done a real number on our ability to reflect, to sit back, to sit in quiet, to sit in solitude, to sit in pain, to endure pain and not see it as just a horrible failure. There's nothing wrong with suffering. It's part of life. I think we've become really infantile in wanting instant gratification, instant pleasure, instant distraction. And I do think what's brand new is the handheld device that everybody seems to be addicted to, which is why I don't own one. Now, I have been your quiet, anonymous reader for some years, and only now I'm able to ask you some questions. I have, in other words, seen you in action as a writer, but I have never seen you in action as a teacher. And that's where I want to go momentarily. And that is that it seems to me that the type of writing that you do, Andre, is so coming from inside and about emotions and contradictions mm. in the honesty to see things for what they are, that I can't think of anything worse than imagining that this type of writing could be taught. You seem to have said in Townie and in the many forums that I have had access to that you discovered your style, you discovered your voice by writing, just like Faulkner used to say, it is 90% technique and 10% talent, maybe, because mm -hmm. we're kind of hammering it. Mm -hmm. So what do we tell students that are arriving to creative writing seminars, where generally the mantra is, write about what you know, and we are going to have a seminar here where we are all going to legislate on what you have given us to read, and we're going to manufacture a type of collective style that will give you a great A, B, or C. Have we pushed American literature to the dumps by bringing writers to become teachers? Oh, I don't think it's that bad, but you are articulating some real dangers, right? The homogenization of style and vision. If a writer is nothing, he or she should be solitary and brave and reckless and not beholding to the group. But I'll tell you what I do, and I do love teaching writing because it has to do with being in a room with other human beings who are sincerely trying to express something honest. The first thing I start with is, look, it's a damn mystery. I'm not going to give you any answers. Hopefully you leave this class with more questions and answers. Thousands of years ago, we didn't know that when a man and woman did that thing, that's why nine months later, baby came out of her body. Well, we've known a lot of things about human beings for many, many years. Science has given us all sorts of wonderful answers. But we still don't know why we're here. Why are we here? Why do I die? Do I go on when I die? You know, all these questions every generation has to ask. And I spend the whole first few weeks talking about mystery. 
I said, what we do here is incredibly mysterious. It's mysterious that one person is drawn to write tales and another is not. And it's a mystery, too, that story feeds human souls. Whether you believe in our soul or not, there's something deeply interior that gets engaged in the presence of a human story. So how do you teach mystery? What I do is I go nuts on rekindling the curiosity that got beaten Mm. out of them as small children. And by the way, the curiosity that I think these gadgets in their hands are putting them in a trance away from. So I have all sorts of exercises I've invented to get them into free-falling into their psyches. And then I tell them when it's time to workshop. And we only start workshopping like eight weeks in. The problem with workshops is it doesn't reward success. Everybody shows up with something they think they have to say that's negatively critical. I want you to feel like you can just come in here and say, this is great, just send it out, keep writing. We don't always have to talk about each other's work. We Mm. can talk about other things. I do think that you're nailing something, that we run the risk of... I'm not an anti-MFA guy, though. I mean, even though I dropped out and didn't get one myself and it didn't work for me. Well, you know, it didn't work for me for a lot of the reasons you're talking about. I had some very smart, hardworking, accomplished people telling me, if you do this, this, and this, then equals that. And I just don't buy it. I've been a carpenter for years. There is a right way and a wrong way to frame a wall. But there is no right way or wrong way to write a short story, a novella, a poem. So is there a right way or a wrong way to tell a student you don't have talent? Yes. I think there's a right way to do it. There's a way to do it gently. But here's the thing, man. Who am I? If I'm working with some kid for 14 weeks, I got to tell you, I've been teaching long enough that I've been wrong. I've seen people go on and create and contribute to culture when I thought, oh, this kid doesn't have a shot. So I don't tell them if they don't have talent. What I ask them is this. Can you go a year without writing and you feel just fine? Oh, yeah. Well, I say, you're probably not a writer. You should do something else. Mm. But if I ask a kid, can you go a year without writing? No, I can't go a week without writing. Well, you're probably a writer. Here are where I see your strengths, young man or woman. Here's where I see your weaknesses. Stop reading this guy and start reading this woman. And I do think it's up to them to find their way. And you believe that writing is nurtured by reading, that a good writer has 100%. to be a good reader? I think it's the second half of the equation. I think that that's it. We're reaching the end of our conversation, which I've enjoyed very much. Me too. Having had a successful film, House of Sand and Fog, adapted from your novel, does that create in the writer, maybe the word is scar or the precedent, that now that you can see characters that you created on film, you might not have liked the acting, You might not have liked the way this was translated into the big picture. But now you know that this is possible so that in the next novel or in the next short story, you unconsciously or maybe indirectly are working to imagine that that will be possible again, that that transition is the ultimate, even if modest, goal of having your work not only read but seen I'm so glad you asked, because no, no, and no for Hmm. me. But I do think you're onto something. Some writers I know who've had some film adaptations, you get the sense reading following works that they're casting it as they write. But I think that's uncommon for people who are trying to write literary fiction, which I try to write. All I mean by literary, again, is honest, character-driven, and work hard in the sentences. And I'm trying to illuminate some kind of truth, whatever the hell that is. I can tell you that it was a beautiful experience to have had that novel made into that movie, which I think is a really well-made movie, and I love the acting, and I was part of the whole film junket and got to know the actors and the director, etc. But for me, man, here's the thing. I don't friggin' love movies. I just like them. If there is a God and she was to take an art form, I'd say take movies. Just don't take music. Don't take dance. Don't take literature. Don't take art. For me, it's not the penultimate thing to have a damn Hollywood movie. The penultimate thing is to have that book that I made in someone's hands. And to me, you know, it's a wonderful problem to have Hollywood interested. You know, and I've got two or three other things in the works in that town. And I'll tell you what, 
My main reason for hoping they happen is they give me more money more to write another book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you read a book of yours after it's published? Do you read a short story? Do you go no. back to your own work? Or no, never. Well, the only time I do that is, I mean, almost all my books I've narrated on audiobook. Almost Do you like the sound of your voice? I don't. But I enjoy reading aloud sentences I've worked hard on. Do you have the temptation to correct them? I do, and I, sometimes I will. I just did it. We've gone so long, and the director will say, oh, no, no, you missed the word now. I said, yeah, I used the word now in two sentences back to back. I don't know how I missed that in right. the editing, but I'm cutting it now, baby. <laughs> Last question, Andre. I want to ask you, you know, in different periods in history, there was no novel. Mm -hmm. There were poems. There was theater. There were other forms of impression. Modernity is deeply connected to the novel as a form. I wonder if you could imagine the novel not existing as a genre. What would we miss? Where would we find ourselves dislocated or anxious because only in a novel we're able to see this or that? Yeah, I sometimes am sleepless worrying about it. We know that the digital world is bringing all sorts of, you know, other distractions for entertainment to people's minds and hearts and souls. And there will be implants very soon. And there will be virtual worlds where you get to be the R.P. McMurphy in your own cuckoo's nest landscape. And there will be all of this. I don't despair too much, though. And I want to get back to your main question about the novel as a form. In the same way that theater has been with us for all these years... You know, with all of these digital distractions, we still go to a dark room and watch live human actors perform words. I think that is going to keep lasting. And I think the novel is going to keep lasting because I think it's the only form so far that we human beings have invented that can do what it does. And what does it do? John Irving said that a novel should have all the high points of life and all the low and nothing in between. Faulkner said it really beautifully, but I'm going to really butcher his exact words. But basically he said, the novelist must freeze time. So that 100 years, when the reader reads it, it moves again. I can't think of another form, even film. Film is, you know, and I'm not a hater of filmmakers. They're beautiful artists, and I love what they do. And, you know, I see films all the time that change my life the way a great novel does. But filmmakers are hamstrung, and they still have to tell a human story of moving pictures. And we fiction writers and readers get to use this man-made thing called language, which I think in the right hands, truth-seeking hands, has the power to go more deeply into a human story than any other form. And I actually just read a really interesting neuroscience essay about it that actually says the same thing, mm. that human language actually penetrates more deeply, I mean, who, how do I can measure this, into the psyche than other art forms. I'm not saying it's the superior one, but I do think its power will make it last. Mm. It's been wonderful to have you, Andre the Views. It's been great to Thank be here. Thank you for coming. Thank you, brother. For the historian and the author of fiction, truth is not one and the same. Or maybe they are, except that each of the two, the historian and the fiction writer, get to it through different means. The historian's truth is made of facts. Facts are uncontestable. They don't stop existing because someone attacks them. Facts are empirical. They are verifiable. Facts are also shared by people who use reason. The fiction writer's truth is made of dreams. It is based on the imagination. The imagination is directly linked to reality, that is, to facts. But facts for the fiction writer can and often are twisted. 
That's because the truth of a novel isn't what actually happened, but what we imagined could have happened. In that sense, the truth of the fiction writer is more personal. But that doesn't mean it is less worthy. Think of a lie. A lie is an untruth. But a lie, to be effective, needs to be truthful. It needs to resemble reality. And resemblance allows it to pass as authentic. A novel is a complex edifice of lies. The fiction writer builds it with talent and dexterity. We, as readers, know that what is being narrated didn't happen, but that doesn't make it less truthful than a history of the same events based on facts. The fiction writer is simply getting to the truth through other means, through lies, through non-truths. Perhaps the historian is less free than the fiction writer to explore the complexity of what truth is. And maybe, just maybe, the fiction writer competes with God in creating facts. At any rate, the truth belongs to the two of them. A different kind of truth. Or maybe the same, except from a different angle. Next time on In Contrast. Fear plays a big role in all of our lives and often a subterranean role so that we don't even notice that we're being motivated by fear. But after the election, I noticed that my own fear was disproportionate. You know, of course, there were things that it was right to be afraid of. But I think like so many Americans, we're getting carried away by fear. And I think on both the left and the right, there are these fears like, oh, the end of the world is at hand and we have to do something desperate. Martha Nussbaum on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with author Min Jin Lee, artist Sonia Clark, and our explorations of poetry with Matthew Sapruder and Forrest Gander, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. And to see our In the Classroom materials for educators, visit our webpage at nepr.net. Our intern is Delina Hadgu. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavitz. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.